Father, as we gaze at the mountains around us and uh, recognize and acknowledge the majesty of, of these physical features on the earth, they simply remind us a little bit of the handiwork of our God. And they cause us, Lord, to look forward to that time when we will walk through the new heaven and the new earth and see the great and wonderful things that you will have made for your people to enjoy forever and ever. And Lord, we know that you have created in us a sense of beauty, a sense of that which is literally awesome. And we know, Father, that uh, as we exercise those attributes and acknowledge you that this is part of the work that your spirit is doing within us. Father, I pray that in every area of our lives we will acknowledge you and that you will truly be Lord. And Father, we pray this morning as we again look at the life of this man, Joseph, that our eyes will be opened as his were and that we will recognize the work that God does in the lives of his people and what you're saying to us today. Even though we live thousands of years later, the truth of God is unchanging. And help us, Father, to not only recognize that truth, but to make it part of our, of our very being. Pilate stood before Jesus and said, what is truth? He didn't really want to know the answer, obviously, because he didn't pursue it. But the scripture tells us that Jesus Christ is the truth. And help us, Lord, to understand that in its full meaning, even as we study this morning. In Christ's name, amen. If you'll turn to the 40th chapter of the book of Genesis, I'd like to begin reading uh, with verse 9 and read through verse 19. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, behold, there was a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. And as it was budding, its blossoms came out, and its cluster produced ripe grapes. Now Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, so I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand according to your former custom when you were his cupbearer. Only keep me in mind when it goes well with you, and please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh, and get me out of this house. For I was in fact kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing that they should have put me into the dungeon. When the chief baker saw that he had interpreted favorably, he said to Joseph, I also saw in my dream, and behold, there were three baskets of white bread on my head. And in the top basket were some of all sorts of baked goods for Pharaoh, and the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. Then Joseph answered and said, This is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and will hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh off you. Well, for the chief cupbearer, <laughs> the news was good. Pharaoh would have a change of heart, 
and restore him to his former position. And Joseph's request for his interpretation was pretty simple. Simply remember me to Pharaoh. Tell Pharaoh my story. That I was kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, that I was brought here as a slave in, in, improperly, that uh, I am in the dungeon under, uh, you know, I was framed, I, I don't belong here, and, and yet God used me to interpret this dream for you. And of course, the cupbearer said, oh yes, I will gladly remember you to Pharaoh. Well, the chief baker, hearing the interpretation of the dream for the chief cupbearer, was encouraged to ask Joseph to do as well for him as he did for the cupbearer. Joseph, of course, learning of the dream and knowing of its interpretation, I think was a little bit reticent to tell to the chief baker the meaning of the dream. But certainly the chief baker urged him and said, oh, please tell me, tell me what is the meaning of the dream. Now, if you go and study in Egypt or if you study photographs taken of the Egyptian tombs and so forth, you will discover that uh, the uh, carvings that are found in the ancient uh, Egyptian necropoli or uh, tomb paintings often will show people bearing burdens on their head. And more often than not, they're males. So the, the image is, is not anything strange, that a man should be carrying on his head baskets in which goods were found. So that, that wasn't uh, at all foreign uh, in the dream to their understanding. As in the cupbearer's uh, dream, the three items represented three days, and Joseph made that quite clear to the cupbearer. The symbols, those things which were, you know, the baskets and the things that were found in the baskets were uh, symbols of the chief baker's office, just as the cup and the grapes and the vine and so forth were the symbols of the chief cupbearer's office. One other factor in the two dreams was similar. And in both cases, Joseph related that the head would be lifted up. But there was a difference in the meaning of the lifting of the head, obviously, as we have read this morning, between the two. In the case of the chief cupbearer, it meant that he would be lifted from his degradation and restored to his former office. Now, there's a somewhat parallel, only you know, quite different in its uh, context, passage I'd like for us to turn to in 2 Kings. It's right at the uh, very end of 2 Kings. As you probably know, if you read through the books of Samuel and Kings, uh, you, you read the story of Saul and David and Solomon and then Rehoboam and Jeroboam and all of the kings of uh, Israel and then uh, most of the kings of Judah down to the time of the Babylonian captivity. At the end of the book of 2 Kings, we have this account beginning at verse 27. Now it came about in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year he became king, released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and set his throne above the throne of the kings who were with him in Babylon. And Jehoiachin changed his prison clothes, and he had his meals in the king's presence regularly all the days of his life. 
And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king, a portion for each day, all the days of his life. Here we have the, the account of, of uh, the king of Judah who was carried off into captivity by Bab the Babylonians. And here when this, uh, this new man becomes king, he had for some reason favor towards Jehoiachin. And so he lifted Jehoiachin out of the royal prison where he'd been kept and put him at the table with himself, evil Merodach, the king of Babylon. And for out, throughout the rest of the days of his life, Jehoiachin enjoyed the presence of the king of Babylon. Enjoyed, whatever that might mean. If he were truly a godly man, he wouldn't have enjoyed sitting in the presence of this pagan king. But Jehoiachin was not a godly man. And so here his head was lifted up in the sense he was lifted out of prison and put in a place of honor. And there he would live out the remaining days of his life. So this is, a, is quite a parallel here to the chief cupbearer being taken out of prison after he'd been in prison for at least several months, possibly a year or more, and, and now being put back in his former position, restored not only to the place of honor of giving Pharaoh his drink, but of the place of power that that represented. Obviously now, in the, in the case of the chief baker, the story was different. His head would also be lifted up, but it would be lifted up from his body which was not a particularly uh, you know, encouraging thought for the baker, certainly. What it meant, of course, was that he would be decapitated and that his body then would be hung upon a tree for the birds to eat. This has to be recognized for what it really is. We're not just talking about here a simple case of execution. Well, the guy's going to be dead. Certainly he's going to be dead. But it means a whole lot more than that because in ancient Egypt, great care was taken to preserve the body of the dead person if the dead person was somebody of honor. Now, certainly the, the peasants would like to have preserved their bodies too, but there, there was no money to do that. The process of mummification was a long process. It took many weeks. It took a lot of labor. It took soaking the corpse in, in this brine, and all kinds of things had to happen. It was a very expensive process. So only the, those of, of great honor and those with the resources to do so would, would be mummified. A person such as the chief baker would have been a person of high standing and therefore would have been uh, an object of mummification had uh, that been allowed to happen. Now, the reason or the purpose of mummification was to preserve the body. It was buried with the trappings of life because they believed somehow this all passed into the next life together. If you look at the tombs of many of the pharaohs, well, for example, when they finally open the, uh, the tomb of, of King Tut, as he's called uh, rather glibly, uh, Tutankhamun, uh, whose, whose uh, tomb was opened in 1922 by an uh, archaeologist by the name of Carter, they found all these objects in the tomb. You know, all kinds of objects of life, objects of worship were in the tomb there because it was believed that these objects would go with the dead person into the next life. They had a lot of really strange ideas in the ancient world. In, in Mesopotamia, it was very common for them when they buried a king to kill a bunch of his servants and bury them too because then they would then be servants in the afterlife to the same guy. Well, uh, for this poor man, the chief baker, he was not only going to be executed in a degrading manner, have his head cut off and his body hung in a tree to, to rot and to be eaten as carrion by the birds, 
but he would have no hope for the afterlife because his body would be destroyed, eaten, rotten away. And so in this case, this man not only had the fear of dying in three days, but the utter despair of no hope whatsoever. Now that utter despair, this, this hopelessness, is a reality that people who don't know Christ face without most of them even knowing it. People in our society live glibly, you know, as if there is no tomorrow or no end to tomorrow, and uh, don't realize they're facing just as hopeless a death as this man faced. It's kind of sad. Hanging on a tree, whether by the neck or by impaling, was considered in most of the ancient world to be a degrading form of execution. You know, there you are hanging out for all public to see. Uh, it, was, it was pretty gross. But even in scripture, it symbolized the curse of God upon a criminal for defiling the land with evil. If we could, I'd like to uh, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 21. Deuteronomy 21, the last two verses, 22 and 23. The Lord through Moses is, of course, giving um, to the children of Israel through, throughout Deuteronomy, which is, simply means the, the repeat or the second law, the, the details to fill in beyond the uh, Ten Commandments, the laws of warfare. Here we have domestic relations. And down at the end of, of chapter 21, if a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree. His corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord gives you as an inheritance. Now this is a particularly important passage because it's background to understanding of what Christ did in the New Testament. Christ was willing to undergo this most degrading form of execution uh, in order to provide atonement. There are many ways by which a person could be executed. And throughout history, all kinds of ways have been thought up. But to hang on a tree, whether by the neck or again by impaling one way or another, is uh, obviously not only extremely painful to think about, but uh, very, very humiliating. But Christ was willing to come and to suffer this extremely degrading form, even so much so as God through Moses said to, the, to, to Israel that the person who hangs on a tree is accursed of God. And in, in Galatians uh, 3.13, uh, you don't have to turn to it if you don't wish, but I'd like to read that that verse there uh, basically comes uh, from that Deuteronomy passage. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 21. So it's obvious that the connection is there. To Paul, the connection between Christ's death on the cross and the proclamation in Deuteronomy is a direct connector. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs 
on a tree. Christ died a painful death, a humiliating death, a cursed death because he bore the curse of our sin. You remember as you read the story of the, uh, of the um, crucifixion, they were amazed when they came, you know, to break the legs of the two criminals. They came to, to Jesus and they found him dead. They were amazed because, you know, Jesus was probably a fairly strong man. I don't think he was a wimp physically. And obviously for him, relatively young, strong, to be dead so soon was surprising to the executioners, to the soldiers there. And personally, I feel that one of the reasons for his early death was that he bore what no man in history ever bore. He bore the weight of all the sin of mankind on his shoulders. And, and you and I are aware of the fact that stories come to us out of many instances of warfare where prisoners of war have been captured. And those prisoners sometimes in utter despair of ever being released or ever experiencing the joy of life again just kind of roll up in the corner in a ball and die for no reason. No apparent reason. And, and the reason is simply they have willed themselves dead. They, they have given up all hope for life. This happened apparently several times in numerous cases in North Korean prisons. As far as we know, when uh, Mary, uh, who know, who's known in history as Bloody Mary, Queen of England, uh, died back in uh, 1558, she died of what they claim is a broken heart. Well, what's a broken heart? There, there was nothing anybody knew physically wrong with the woman. But everybody hated her. And so she just apparently gave up life and died. And so if you, you think that people can, can die simply because they have been emotionally killed, you might say, think of Jesus bearing all the sin of all of mankind through all of history. The weight of that sin was really the cause of his death. And, and that weight was so great that he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't think it's really easy for us to get, get the point. You know, We talk about how, ang how, how horrible it is to have, have spikes driven in our, it might be to have spikes driven into our wrists and into our ankles and to be impaled on, on, a, on a cross, how painful that'd be to be hanging there and not able to breathe and all these kinds of things. And that's true. But, but the great pain for Christ was not the physical pain. It was the spiritual pain of all of that sin. Because as Paul tells us uh, in 2 Corinthians, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It doesn't say just to carry the sin, but to become the sin. Jesus became the sin of all mankind. It, it just enveloped him as he took it all in and died on our behalf. To go back to the chief baker, the chief baker died a horrible death, but he died in vain for his own sin. It did not atone for his sin before Pharaoh or, or anywhere else, and certainly not before God. His death did not pay for his sin. People who die in this world in their sins do not pay for their sins by their death because their death is not adequate. It took the death of one who knew no sin to pay for sin. 
And therefore, by our death, we can't obtain eternal life. And that's why certain concepts which have crept into the teaching of the church down through the centuries are erroneous. The whole concept, for example, of a purgatory. As rational as that might be, as reasonable as that might be. In fact, that's why it's there, because it is rational. If you and I were inventing a religion, we would invent a purgatory. A heaven for the really good people, a hell for the really bad people, and a purgatory for everybody else. You know, because most people that we know have some good aspects to them and some bad aspects, but you know, they're not so bad they should go to hell like Hitler. And they're not so good they ought to go to heaven like, well, I don't know who, but <laughs> you might think of somebody. <laughs> But everybody ought to go to a place where they're purged for a few thousand years so that they get ready for heaven. This is very, very rational. This isn't biblical. The Bible doesn't talk about any such place. Because Christ's death is sufficient for all of our sin. So that as we have been cleansed by that sin, we are worthy of heaven by His blood and His work in our lives. If we are not washed by that blood, we are not even worthy of purgatory if it existed, but only of hell. The chief baker died a horrible death in this life and went to a horrible existence afterwards in hell because he knew not Christ. Now, it, it's possible. It's, it's possible, and hopefully it's so. It's not said so here. It's possible that Joseph, after telling him what would happen, then comforted him and said, now listen, I know the true and the living God. If you will believe in the true and the living God, there is hope for you. Maybe, maybe. We, we're to be arguing from silence. But knowing the character of Joseph, that could very well be what he did. And, and, and possibly the chief baker, although he died, may have come to a belief in the God of Joseph. We can, we can hope that that was true. Let's look at verse 23 of Galatians, I mean of uh, Genesis 40. Verse 20 to 23. Thus it came about on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants. And he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. And he restored the chief cupbearer to his office and, put the cup into Pharaoh, and he put the cup into Pharaoh's hands. And he hanged the chief baker, just as Joseph had interpreted to them. Then the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Well, three days later, after the dreams had been interpreted and exactly according to the teaching of the dream, Pharaoh threw a birthday party in his own honor. And he invited all of his servants. Now, when we read that, we might think, oh, you mean he invited the scullery maid and, you know, and, and uh, no, when it says his servants, it means the lords and ladies of the land were invited. All of the high muckamucks, of course, were invited to Pharaoh's birthday. But just as Joseph had interpreted, the cupbearer was elevated back to his position of power and given the ability to again give to the Pharaoh his drink and to have all of the rights and prerogatives that went with that position, and the chief baker was executed. We have no reason, we, we have no details here as to why this happened. Did Pharaoh conduct an investigation? Did the chief of his CIA or KGB or whatever search into the deal and find out that the cupbearer was innocent and the chief baker was guilty? 
Or was this simply an act of capriciousness on the part of the pharaoh? <laughs> I more think it was the latter than the former. And the chief cupbearer was raised up and the chief baker was executed. The last verse of the uh, passage here of this chapter helps us to understand a little bit of the frustration that must have come over, Pharaoh, uh, over Joseph. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Ever had somebody forget you who promised they'd do something for you? Oh, we've all had that experience. And some children, I mean, I mean some people can remember back to their childhood when, some, when their parent promised to do something and, and never did it, and, and that just sticks in the mind for some reason or other. The cupbearer had solemnly promised, oh, yes, Joseph, I will remember you before. That's the first thing I'll tell Pharaoh is what you have done for me, right? In his excitement, though, he completely forgot about Joseph. After all, who was Joseph? Just a foreigner in the prison. Why should he remember him? Let me read a couple of verses, a few verses here from Luke chapter 17, beginning at verse 11. Luke 17, 11. And it came about while he was on the way to Jerusalem that he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a certain village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And it came about that as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who turned back to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. You know, for us who are believers, it's, it's, it might be a little bit hard for us to grasp how something like this could happen. If Jesus did some great miracle for you, would you neglect to thank him for what he had done? Well, I hope not. <laughs> but here he had cleansed these ten lepers, and the implication is only one of them was a Samaritan and the other nine were Jews. That seems to be the implication. It doesn't say it specifically here. But the nine who were Jews, do they come back and thank Jesus? No, they just go on their merry way, healed, and, and apparently went back to their, uh, the, whatever life they had known before they became lepers. And they didn't give Jesus a second thought. If someone cannot even think to thank someone who has done such a wonderful, I mean, given them life, literally, you can understand how a cupbearer might forget Joseph but I think it was hard for Joseph. I think it was really hard for Joseph because his hope, it seemed like his only hope. He, he was just rotting away in prison otherwise uh, if this man didn't speak to Pharaoh because Pharaoh was the only one with the power to, to pardon him because he was put in the prison by the captain of the bodyguard who was one of the highest standing officials in all of the land and only Pharaoh really could uh, pardon him and release him from prison. So this was really Joseph's only hope. 
was that Pharaoh might have mercy on him. But the chief cupbearer forgot him. I think it's important for us to recognize as we think about this that God knew that all along. God knew the chief cupbearer would forget him. In fact, God may have removed the thought of Joseph out of the man's mind. Why? Because it wasn't God's time yet to get Joseph out of prison. God has a very, very distinct timetable. You read in Galatians 4.4 that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. There was a moment in all of history that God had foreordained would be the moment in which Christ would be born. Not a moment before, not a moment later, but at that very moment in time. And, and we have to consider that God has a plan for our lives too. And as we are living in obedience to Him, His timetable is brought into play in our lives. And we are to be patient with Him to bring about what He wants to do in His time. However, if we're being disobedient, we're mucking up the whole timetable. Now, He already knows that we'll muck it up. But nevertheless, we're fouling up the works. Chapter 41 we're now beginning the final 20% of the book. I don't know if you can handle it, but <laughs> we'll race right along here. Chapter 41. Now it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he was standing by the Nile. And lo, from the Nile there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed in the marsh grass. <laughs> kind of interesting translation, isn't it? We don't often think of sleek and fat as two attributes of the same thing. But in this case, obviously, it was. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile, ugly and gaunt. And they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. Then Pharaoh awoke. <laughs> no wonder. Verse 5, And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven ears, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Then Pharaoh awoke. And behold, it was a dream. Now it came about in the morning that his spirit was troubled. So he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. A lot of dreams in Genesis, aren't there? I, I think when we study scripture, again, we have to constantly remind ourselves of the fact uh, of what I believe is the fact that as you study from Genesis through Revelation, looking at progressive revelation, God has revealed himself slowly through the centuries, a little more, a little more, a little more, through the pages of, of, of Scripture. And as we come to Revelation, we know God as fully as we're going to know him in this life, a whole lot more than Abraham did as he stood between the pieces of smoking uh, of sacrifice there, uh, and, and God appeared to him in, in a dream. 
dreams were important in Genesis because that was one of the chief means by which God spoke to people in those days. I'm not going to say that God cannot speak to us in a dream today. He can do whatever He wishes. But I think He speaks to us primarily through His Word. He doesn't need to come to us in a vision. He doesn't need to come to us in a dream because we have everything He wants to say to us right here before us, and it's up to us to learn it. But in, in these days we're talking about, there was no book. There was no Bible. There was no preacher. Therefore, God spoke in, in these ways to his people and, and even to those who weren't his people. The immediate antecedent for the phrase that begins this chapter, now it happened at the end of two full years, is the account of the cupbearer and the chief baker. So we assume that the two full years means from the time that the chief cupbearer was elevated back to power, had promised that he would tell Pharaoh about Joseph, but forgot Joseph. And from that moment on, two full years passed and Joseph was still in prison. Thinking about the chief cupbearer. Why are you not telling Pharaoh? <laughs> what is going on here? So Joseph remained for two more years in prison. It would seem, therefore, if you add it all up, that at the very, very minimum, Joseph was in prison for three years. And I think it was considerably more than that. Remember, Joseph was 17 when he came to Egypt. He is 30 when he is elevated to power. That's a 13-year period in between. In that 13-year period, how long was he a servant to Potiphar? How old was he when he was framed by Potiphar's wife? Well, we don't know any of those things. But I, I, I think that if we said Joseph was in prison for at least five years, we probably wouldn't overstate the case. God's furnace of purification is known more for the quality of its product than for the speed of its process. I think it's really important that we keep that concept in mind. That God's process of purification is known more for the quality of the product he's seeking to turn out than for the time involved in the purification. If it takes God 10 years to make you or me into what he wants me to, wants us to be, so be it. God is concerned with a product that comes out at the end, not how long it takes. That's why he suffers with us as long as he does. That's why he is patient as much as he is patient with civilizations down through time and hasn't just zapped them with a thunderbolt, as it were. Because he's in the process of redemption. He's in the process of purification. He wants to make us a holy people, a royal priesthood. This is what Peter clearly saw. And that's what he's trying to do with us. And you and I are all in some part of the process, if we're true believers. We're being purified. Sometimes that purification puts us through a very, very difficult relationship with another person or persons. Sometimes it puts us through a very difficult physical problem. Sometimes it's a financial problem. 
Sometimes it's even depression or, or whatever it might be. God uses these processes to purify us. He wants us to come out at the end as Job did. Though he slay me, I will not deny him. Think about that. If anybody went through a... I mean, we use Job all the time, right? If it weren't for Job, I don't know what we'd do. But with Job there, we, we have a way of understanding this process of purification. And basically, about all the stops were pulled out that could have been pulled out. And what else could Satan have done to Job short of taking his life? Not much. And, and yet Job came out purified at the end. And God blessed him by multiplying everything uh, to him again. And, and we're all in, in some place in that purification process. And sometimes I think we may drag that process out by kicking against it, by fighting it, by saying, oh God, why me? You know, why do I have this terrible disease? Or why have I gone bankrupt? Or why this or why that? Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with asking that question. But if we live that question and it just tears us apart so that we just think that God is, is mean and, and nasty, then we're fighting the process. He's patient with us. For his children, I, he puts up with that garbage. But we're slowing the process down of, of bringing us to what he wants us to be. He wants us to come out as Job did. Though he slay me, yet will I not deny him. As you have heard many times, uh, the illustration has been used of Polycarp, who was a second century Christian martyr, who, according to Eusebius in his church history, as Polycarp, was, he, he was in his mid-80s when he's subjected to persecution, physical persecution, uh, because of his Christian witness. And when he was given an opportunity to, uh, to avoid, they were going to whip him with a cat nine, and I don't mean just a little a, le a leather uh, whip, but a whip with pieces of metal tied into it. And, you know, it was just going to tear him to shreds. When he was given the opportunity, because he was an old man, to, to just say, oh, all you have to do is simply say, I don't believe in Jesus and we won't do this to you. And according to Eusebius, uh, he said, these 86 years he has, I forget the exact words, but in effect, he has not denied me and I will not <coughs> deny him. He was purified, you see, through the process. And he paid with his life in a horrible way. But God completed his process in him. We are all in the process, and we're not going to come out uh, as pure gold until we've crossed Chile Jordan, as it were. But uh, he wants us to be clay in the potter's hand. And uh, he wants to mold us into a fit vessel. And that's what he was doing with Joseph for all these years that he was in prison. He was not on the shelf. He was not a castaway. He was simply in God's process of purification. I think he was discouraged at times. I mean, it was human. I, I think he sometimes had some bad thoughts about the cupbearer. And I'm sure some of his prayers to God were, oh God, what's going on? Why am I here so long? You know I'm not guilty. I don't deserve this. I mean, I was innocent back there in, 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 uh, at Dothan. And why am I here? Why am I going through all this? But in it all, we find every time we read about Joseph is that he hung in there and was faithful to do whatever God had given him to do. And he went about as high as you could go through the echelons of the prison. 
top prisoner. Good. <laughs> Might not sound like much of a, uh, you know, accomplishment, but uh, it displayed something in the character of Joseph. Well, unbeknownst to Joseph, of course, God was about to catapult him from prison cell to prince's palace and literally overnight. But Joseph didn't know that. That which Joseph could not do with all of his pleading to the cupbearer, you know, even if he had an opportunity to write a note to the cupbearer and send it up there and say, hey, dude, when are you going to remind, you know, remember me to Pharaoh? Even if he had that opportunity, it wasn't God's time. The note would have gotten lost or the cupbearer would have thrown it away or ignored it or whatever because it wasn't God's time. But when it's God's time, look what God can do. He can put a dream in the mind of Pharaoh that will radically transform Joseph's situation literally overnight. Doesn't take the cupbearer, doesn't take anything, just God and Pharaoh. And it was just as easy for God to put a dream in Pharaoh's mind as it was in the lowliest peasant of all Egypt. <laughs> and I think it was kind of fun for God to do it to, to Pharaoh anyway, because Pharaoh was the son of God. And I think God got a big kick out of confounding the character. According to Egyptian theology, Pharaoh was the descendant of the god Horus through a union with an Egyptian princess. Now to us, of course, we think how absurd. But in the mythologies of many peoples, that was not absurd at all. You look at Greco-Roman theology, it happened all the time in their mythology. Gods would come down out of heaven and, and you know, have a sexual union with a person. And some persons got to be elevated to godhood and all this kind of thing. And so for the ancient Egyptians, this, this was, was reality. It wasn't just a, a myth. Now, Horus was the first major god to be accepted by all Egyptians. Now, remember when I gave you that handout, Egypt started out as a bunch of little city-states all strung out along the Nile. Eventually, the city-states in the north were unified in what was known as Lower Egypt, and the city-states of the south were unified in what was known as Upper Egypt. And then finally, about 3100 BC, uh, the king of Upper Egypt was able to, by force, unify Upper and Lower Egypt into a single kingdom of Egypt, and he is thought of as being the first pharaoh. And uh, the, the god that was first accepted by both Upper and Lower Egypt as a major god was Horus. Now, if you ever have been confused by, by uh, Greek or Roman mythology, you will be doubly confused by Egyptian theology and mythology. And, and the reason is because what they believed changed from time to time. And you're going to discover that although the top god in Lower Egypt was the sun god Re, and the top god in Upper Egypt was the sun god Amun, and later on they merged the two as Amun-Re, that helped a little, uh, there was confusion between Re and Horus. And Horus was often called the sun god and symbolized by the sun. And so you have the various gods get mixed up with each other. And from one time to another, uh, one god's elevated over the other gods. And, and anyway, Horus 
was a very, very important god in ancient Egypt. He was sometimes considered to be the chief god. He was usually pictured as a falcon or as a human with a falcon head. And as you look again at Egyptian necropolis paintings, you'll discover this is portrayed very, very frequently. Often you'll find a carving or a painting of Pharaoh, and sitting on Pharaoh's shoulder is the falcon. And that's the symbol of, of his ancestry, of, of his deity, of his patron, and of all this kind of thing. And so uh, here is Pharaoh, the son of the life-giving god of the sky, Horus. You all have heard of the all-seeing eye, you know? That was the eye of Horus, the falcon who flies high, the sun in the sky whose eye sees all and sees everywhere. We even have it on our dollar bill, you know, at the top of the little pyramid. The pharaoh was considered to be the divine descendant of this popular god. And I think it just delighted God to no end to give this pharaoh a dream that he couldn't figure out. <laughs> Confuse the god. Oh, great. Pharaoh and his court were so steeped in religious mythology that the only way God could open their minds to reality is to create a situation for which the Egyptian gods had no answer. The Egyptian priests and magicians didn't know what to say. <laughs> Duh, we don't know. Well, you're supposed to have the mind of the gods, and you, Pharaoh, are supposed to be the son of God. What's going on here? Why can't you figure this out? Well, there's a lot of symbolism in the dream, and it would take too long to get it. But I, I need to note, for example, that the, the river itself was religious. The cows are religious. It's a religious dream. It doesn't look that way to us. As you read the dream, you just think, well, there's cows in a river, and they're eating grass. Big deal. I've seen river and cows, and I've seen them eating grass. I've seen fat cows. I've seen skinny cows. You know, so what's the big deal here? But as Pharaoh saw it, it's a very, very important dream to him, and it's full of, 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 of symbolism because the river was sacred. The cows were sacred. How sacred were the cows? They symbolized the mother of God, if you will. And we'll talk about that next week. <laughs>